Thank you, Will. I'm a big fan. <laughs> I am. One time I went to this church to preach a sermon, and they, uh, they had a tape player for the songs. And I'm, it's just the, they didn't have people to do the music. And, you know, I was sitting there, and I was thinking about it. I closed my eyes. And as I closed my eyes, I thought, with my eyes closed, it seems like I'm at the concert of this band whether it be Hillsong or whoever. So why don't we just have you know, the tape play instead of have a band? But then I realize it's not just about having you know, good music or good sounding music. There's something special about a group of people in our church, in our community, standing up and saying, this is my gift, this is what I want to contribute, and leading us to a place of praise and worship. One of the Psalms of Ascent says, how good and pleasant is it for brothers to dwell together in unity. There's not a lot of unity celebrated in our world nowadays, but when I look around and see everybody singing the same song, the same lines, and in all of our hearts singing the same thing, it's moving. Yeah, I'm glad for it. Kind of reminds me of uh, also this, this one time I was at a conference and there was a panel discussion on um, if YouTube sermons will replace uh, the live local pastor sermon. And uh, it's a good question because there's a lot of good content out there online that you can get to for free. But, uh, you know, my answer to that would be it all depends on what you as a community are trying to get. If you're trying to get the best information, and if your goal as a community just try to get a transference of knowledge, then by all means, find the content from the best professors, scholars, theologians that you can. But at Crossroads, we're not necessarily trying to just have a transference of information. Where's the community here that wants to open the Bible and say, critique me? Open, the Bi open God's word and say, uh, this is a mirror. Show me my idol. Show me if my life is centered around the gospel. Show me uh, how I can change. A community that's humble and prayerfully discerning what to do with life. And I believe that the word of God is alive and active. It's not just a cold, dead textbook. It's something that's able to pierce and able to help us discern and to give us wisdom and direction and guidance for our life, to teach us, to reprove us, to help us uh, to see how to live in 2018 Grand Rapids. So I've prepared some thoughts and challenges for you today. This room, this group of people in this church to think about. Uh, from the book of Acts. And so if you're with me, I'd like to invite you to consider the gospel of Jesus Christ that it's, as it's moved in the life of the Apostle Paul. Acts chapter 20, if you're uh, willing to turn there. While you're turning there, a short commercial. If you're a young adult, my name is Dan Mike, and I am one of the pastors here at this church, specifically focusing on serving the college students and uh, post-college 20s and 30s. Tonight... If you're in your 20s and 30s, you don't have any friends, or you're having a hard time getting connected. I'm, not, I'm just saying there's a lot of times somebody says to me, Dan, I come to this church, it's so big, I don't know how to get known. 
I know that the social life at Crossroads is hard sometimes because there's so many of us. So we're having a taco night tonight. It's, it's, at, it's out here. Taco night tonight at either six or seven. I didn't get that far in the email. I, I just thought I wanted to make an announcement, but I didn't have the details there. I'm not making it easy for you to get connected. You might get locked out. Thursday night, the church thing, so we forgot to unlock the doors, and I thought I was the only one that was coming to, then all of a sudden, everybody's just waiting outside. It's not easy to be a young adult at Crossroads. I'm not going to spoon feed you and unlock the doors. Taco night tonight, if you want to uh, come hang out, have some time together, get to know who goes to church with you. If you found your way to Acts chapter 20, um, please stand with me for the reading. Acts 20 and verse... 22, right in the middle of a speech that Paul's making. I'm going to read to you a section of this speech. Use it as a hook to kind of go before and after and around uh, the story of where he is right now. Acts 20, 22. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me Prison and hardship are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I might finish my race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given to me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. It's the very word of God. You may have a seat. A couple of things that strike me about the situation that Paul's in in this uh, story of his life right now. As Paul said in verse 22, he is now compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. This series of events, starting with Paul's decision to go to Jerusalem, marks the final chapter of Paul's life, whether he knows it or not. There's been an observable uh, outline or, or um, an observable pattern of Paul's uh, life so far. We've been studying him and, and his life for the greater part of the last 25 or 30 years of his ministry. And he does this thing where he goes hard and, and goes out and ministers to people and, and uh, makes disciples and helps him plant church and goes to the next city or is somehow pushed to the next city through persecution or something. And then after a while, he ends up uh, regrouping at a city for a little while and then goes back out and does it again and regroups at a city for a while. He, he did that, you can see at Corinth, he spent 18 months there regrouping and then goes back out. And he's been in Ephesus now for two years. It's not been easy for him at Ephesus. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, he says, I fought wild beasts in Ephesus. There's some scholars that I look up to who say that he actually went to jail in Ephesus for a period of time. Um, it, it hasn't been easy for him, but he's been gathering himself, collecting himself, and now he decides that he's actually completed his task in Turkey and in Greece. He's got these churches to a place where he's comfortable letting them go. And so now he's going to uh, turn a leaf over and move on to something else. Paul, in his heart, wants to go to Spain. As far as I can tell, he's never been there before. I'm not really sure what is in his heart and why he wants to go there, if it's just 
Paul's passion for spreading the gospel or some to infinity and beyond kind of mentality, but he is on his way to Spain. So for those of you who are thinking right now that you don't have to be a cartographer to see if he's trying to go to Spain, why would he leave from the Aegean Sea area in, in, in Western Turkey to go to Jerusalem in the east? Why would he choose to go way out of his way if his heart's really trying to go to Spain? Well, as Paul has in his mind, feeling like these churches are, are, are ready, he's got one last thing that he's trying to do. He's trying to take a collection of money, a gift to Jerusalem from these churches. And there's a lot of different speculation about why he does this, but I got a couple different ideas. But first, let me introduce you to the concept of this gift, because not a lot of people talk about it. Let me just read you a verse from 1 Corinthians. Among many of his letters, Paul references this gift. And depending on how you look at it, he's written most of his letters by this time. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul writes this. About the collection for God's people, do what I told all the churches in Galatia to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I'll give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them to Jerusalem with your gift. If it seems advisable for me to go also, then I will accompany them. Apparently, uh, Colossian, or the Corinthian church loses a little bit of steam on this idea of this gift because in the second letter, 2 Corinthians, he devotes two chapters to this, chapter 8 and chapter 9. Scholar I read this week said tongue-in-cheek, more Bible verses have been written by Paul about this gift than about justification. Read to you from Romans chapter 15, one of the most recent letters he's written, um, close to, to where he's at in our story today. Romans chapter 15, he says, There's, But now there, that there is no more place for me to work in the region that I'm in, and since I have been longing for many years to see you, I plan on seeing you when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while. However, I'm on my way currently to Jerusalem in service of the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution to the poor in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and they indeed owe it to them. For if the Gentile has shared in the Jewish spiritual blessing, they also owe it to share with their material blessing. So after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this fruit, I will continue on to Spain and visit you on the way. Look at verse 31. He's a little uneasy about this. Pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service in Jerusalem would be acceptable to the saints that are there. My opinion on this gift is, is that it's a brilliant twofold gift, uh, or, or, or concept from, for Paul. On the one hand, like he said in Romans 15 here, it's fitting that the Gentiles contribute back. They're inheriting the spiritual blessing as well. But he also is nervous 
that this gift isn't even going to be acceptable from, by Jerusalem. What's going on there? I think it's a natural thing for Paul to have his last thing that he does with these churches he's spent years of his life working with to do some act of generosity. Why do I think that? Because one of the most fundamental beliefs in the Judaism of his day is in acts of charity. I grew up with this word that some of you might uh, also know, righteousness. But I grew up in a very ambiguous kind of definition of what that meant. I don't know what righteousness is. It's just, it's, it's this thing that God kind of did for us, but we should also try and do. And at best, I might get like a Sunday school teacher to say it's right living, which does not pass for a definition, but kind of sounds good. Righteousness to me was something that I just sort of, you sort of feel your way. You'll, you'll just know what to do when the time comes and you'll know that that's the right thing to do. And it's not a vague concept for Paul. Righteousness in its Hebraic roots is always closely connected to an act of charity. This is clearly seen even in the teaching of Jesus. Right in the center of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6 of Matthew, verse 1, says what? Be careful to do your act of righteousness so that others can see. But when you give to the poor... Do so so that your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing. So he uses giving to the poor an act of righteousness synonymously there because that's kind of the common concept of what, how righteousness works its way out. It's not just with money. Righteousness is disadvantaging yourself to advantage somebody else. Why does Paul connect this to the inheritance of the Jewish faith? It's because this is a major reflection for Abraham himself, the father of the faith, who has that pesky verse that so many people struggle with uh, interpreting that says, uh, Abraham left his father's household, and this was a credit to him as righteousness. Well, if you take sort of this element of righteousness as an act of charity or disadvantaging yourself for somebody else, it fits right into place. Abraham has an inheritance. He has a family job. He has a people. He has a land. And God says, Abraham, pick it up and move to a place uh, that you don't have any people. You don't have any plan. You don't have any land. Do it for me, and I'll bless you and bless all of the nations because of you. Disadvantage yourself to bring advance to somebody else. And then he becomes the father of their faith. By the time of Paul, the most righteous act that they could come up with was serving at a funeral. Because this is the one time that they can figure out that they're actually going to disadvantage themselves to advance somebody else that they'll never be paid back in return for. You probably remember that parable that Paul, uh, that Rod, <laughs> Freudian slip, that Rod said <laughs> a few months ago about um, the, the rabbi that was told by God he's not going to go to heaven and he danced. Because he said, now I'll serve the rest of my life for you knowing that I'm going to do it purely because I love you and not because I'm going to get something in return. Paul is teaching them, this is what the family does. 
My last act with you is going to be an act of complete generosity to set the standard with you and to say, if you want to be a part of this family, if you want to share with this movement, we have a standard here of not just hoarding our resources for ourselves, but serving the poor, the very thing that he was eager to do. We are, we are not just going to collect all of our resources and create a kingdom or a fiefdom of ourselves, but we're going to disadvantage ourselves to advance somebody else. So he sets this standard and packs his bags to Jerusalem. He also then, in Jerusalem, wants them to receive this gift because Paul desperately wants to see racial reconciliation, gospel racial reconciliation, where there is no longer this division between Jew and Greek, which is no small task. Whether you read a Roman historian or a Jewish historian, there's a couple different numbers of how many people live in Jerusalem at this time. One is uh, the most of one million or a little over a million. Randall Booth, uh, a scholar that I look up to, says that one in three in Jerusalem at this time believe in Jesus. So do the math. Was it 300,000 or something like that? People believe in Jesus. When Paul gets to Jerusalem, James tells him, there are many people here that are zealous for the law, but are also, you know, believing in Jesus. Well, what does that do? Well, their culture has rules about how you are clean and how you're unclean and, and what the Gentile brings into uh, your faith and your religion. And it's mostly in the category of poison and unclean. They had standards like you weren't even allowed to say the name of a Jewish town without your mouth becoming unclean. How are they going to respond to this unclean money and this gift coming? Paul desperately wants to see them have a seat at the table in Jerusalem. So he gets all this money together and brings it to uh, Jerusalem with seven respected men from the region. Compelled by the Spirit, he'll go way out of his way to see this great symbol of reconciliation happen. Do they accept it? Well, I'll leave it as a cliffhanger for next week. I'm not going to talk to you about tithing uh, this morning because this is much more than tithing. It's much more than a temple tax. To Paul, this is a gospel issue. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he says it best. When he's talking about this gift, he says, I don't command you to do this. But you know that Jesus Christ, though he was rich, became poor for our sake. You know that in his poverty, he sought to make us rich. He disadvantaged himself so that we could get advantage. Advantage. This is a firm core belief for Paul, and so he's willing to go way out of his way to make it happen. And he goes to Jerusalem. The second thing I want to notice about this trip to Jerusalem is the cost. This is a costly thing for Paul, and, and we've seen many different ways that he's had physical cost throughout his life here um, that we've been studying physical cost as he has been uh, stoned or imprisoned or beaten or hunted. Some even have speculated that he had a stroke because of some of this, where in Galatians he writes, you would have given me your very eye if you could. And, and maybe there's like, there's thinking, is there something wrong with his eye? Um, and so we've seen such a great physical cost 
I want to talk about this cost. Because I've seen even in some of these stories more than a physical cost, even a, a relational cost that he goes through. After the speech that, that, I, that I read where, where he says, um, I only know that the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships face me in every city that I go to. He goes on and, and continues on in his speech, and at the end it says, when he was done speaking, they knelt down and prayed, and all the men there wept because, of he, because he said that he'll, you'll never see me ever again. Remember uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, where he says, Timothy, I think about you all the time, and I remember your tears. It's an emotional cost for him to say goodbye to these people he's been pouring into for years. It costs him, even on his journey, as, as he leaves Ephesus and goes up and collects the money from all these churches and, and is going to set sail from Corinth, he learns of uh, another plot against his life, and then you can just continue to read all these different routes that he takes to sort of make his way east he knows that he's not going to see anybody again. He even takes the opportunity in one of the cities to preach all night long, basically. I don't know if you, you read this in chapter 20, where he's preaching well after midnight on a work day. Everybody's tired. And all of a sudden, this kid is sleeping in the windowsill and falls out, falls down to the ground. You can't imagine Paul, first person to run down there, maybe him and Timothy next to this kid. He's like... This kid's dead. He yells up, this, he's not dead. He yells to everybody, don't worry. I mean, you imagine him just praying like, I'll never be able to preach again if, if I, if this, God, you really got to help me out with this here. And then the kid is raised to life and then he goes right back in and continues on to preach. Debate about whether or not bringing this into the story or not, but you know. It's kind of a little, a little side note, but I don't mind if people sleep when I share. So usually we do it on Sunday morning and on the main level of this building. I like to think that I'm just so soothing <laughs> that everybody could just sort of relax and get your REM cycle going and it'll somehow work itself into your psyche. Well, I'm more concerned about people who are sleeping inside than outside. Um, Paul continues this costly journey to Jerusalem and makes his way to Philip's house in Caesarea Maritime. Philip and his daughters, even Luke, they have strong cautions about Paul continuing up to Jerusalem. A prophet comes over for the night, and he gets a little Old Testament, Ezekiel, you know, Jeremiah, flair going, and takes Paul's belt and uh, ties himself up somehow, and he, he says, thus will be the owner of this belt in Jerusalem. The Jews will bind him and hand him over to the Gentiles. You ever been in a situation where you know that you got to go, you know you got to do something, and your friends and your family all say, we're very concerned about this? Especially if they're like Agabus, Truth. They're using truth. He's not wrong. It's not like he misheard God. He's right. This is a cost. This is a relational, costly thing for Paul to be able to look at his whole community. Luke, in, in, in these verses, uh, this would be in chapter 20, 
He uses the word we. We strongly, chapter 20, verse 12, we heard this. We, the people, pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Everybody's saying, don't do this. I think we underestimate the cost. Uh, I guess it's hard to overestimate on, on the contrast. The cost that Paul uh, pays, the toll that he pays to spread the gospel. I'm not trying to pick a fight with anybody. I just want to be everybody's brother. We're, weasel my way into everybody's family. <laughs> I just, I get so tired of hearing people who haven't paid any cost at all for the gospel just look at Paul and say, you know what, I just disagree. It's just so arrogant for a guy who would be willing to lay his life down in, in front of his friends and his family to, to, to stand on his conviction because of his love for God, because of his love for uh, the church of God, and, and then to just say, you know what, Paul, you're just wrong. I'm just gonna, I, I know better than you. If that's you, I love you. But just consider the cost that Paul paid to be able to put words on this page. Even if you remove, like, the fact that we believe that Holy Spirit inspires and leads, you know, all the writers of the Bible for this to become God's authoritative word. Even if you were to take that away, Paul still earns a little bit of our respect, spending 30 years of his life on the run just to advance the gospel. I'm not saying that Paul's just got north on his compass is whatever's going to hurt me. That, that the risk or that they might say, oh, we just need to do the hard things and then we'll get street cred in the church. What I'm saying is, 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 is that there is a big temptation in our world to just sort of get something valuable for less money or, or for cheaper. I tried to sell a gas range on Craigslist this week that, I, that was from my house from before I moved in. And this... Last time I was trying to get rid of something, I gave it away for free, and my wife and everybody was kind of mad at me for that. It still kind of comes up, so I thought, I'm going to put a little price tag on this, even though I don't care. Put a price tag on it for practically nothing. This guy comes over. He's very excited about the range. I help him load up into his truck, and he says to me, oh, I didn't bring proper change. Do you mind taking $10 less? Of course I don't mind. But it was already kind of cheap. <laughs> and so I'm like, it's just common. It, it's just part of our world to say, I'm going to try and get something for cheaper. That, that's good. And that's a major virtue that we celebrate. And it works its way into our religion, into our faith. Oh, I can just 
get all of my American comfort and, and, and stuff for uh, less time, and uh, I, I can do it for less money in the end, and I can have the same comfort and benefit of being here in this country. Also, I can have all of the benefit and country, uh, comfort of the being in the family of God, and I'm going to do that as, as simply and without any effort, as little effort as possible. I'm not saying that you have to pay to get into this family. You don't. It's free for you to be a part of this family. But this family has a standard, and it is to give everything we got for the sake of Jesus Christ. Our king has a teaching when he says, if you seek to save your life, you're going to lose it. You seek to, to get, have everything at once. This is the way out of, 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 of our path. There's a broad path that lots of people find their way on, and it's really easy to walk down, but that is the path to destruction. Choose the narrow path, which is harder, and it's, it's difficult, and few find it, but it leads to life. This is what Jesus did anyways. Praying in the garden, Gethsemane. Hey, there might be an easier way out of this, huh, God? <laughs> but not my will, but yours be done. Which is the same conclusion that Paul, uh, Paul's friends come to after he says to them, why are you, make, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? <laughs> why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm not only ready to be bound, but to die in Jerusalem for the name of Jesus. True north on Paul's compass isn't just suffering or uh, you know, imprisonment. It's obedience. And I'd love to see us in our own ways, in our own natural ways, seek to be faithful and obedient to the call that the Lord places on our heart, to the gospel that's inside all of us, like he said at the beginning of this, Holy Spirit's leading me in this direction, and I'm going to obey, come what may. If it costs me, it costs me. I'm ready. There's a cost. Last thing I want to kind of talk about in regards to this story is not only the cost there, but what do you have to have in order to be able to answer people like this? To say, I'm ready to be bound. You know what they say, martyrs die a long time before they're killed. The last verse that I read to you in the speech on the shores of, uh, of near Ephesus, is verse 24. I consider my life worth nothing. If only I might finish my race. And complete the task the Lord Jesus has given to me. The task of testifying to the gospel of grace. There's a big why behind what Paul is doing in all of this stuff. He has a rock solid foundation centered on the gospel. Testifying to that gospel. Being consistent with the gospel. Bringing that to, to, to everybody that he comes in contact with. Let that if only that he says challenge you and confront you because it challenges me there's a lot of things that I'd fill that blank in with motivations as to why I do things or or what direction my life is going if only I could get more respect if only I could get more 
money. If only I could get more toys. If only I could get more uh, comfort or time off. Or if only I can get more uh, of this or that. Times in life where it's like, if only I could get more romance. Or if only I could get somebody to, to recognize me. If only I could get to this place. We'll never be a people who are able to say, I am, I am going to go to Jerusalem regardless of the cost if we're not willing to say, my if only is that I might continue to just testify to the grace of the gospel of God. The, the gospel of the grace of God. Paul's if only is really compelling. And evaluate yourself. What's my motivation? And how do I get to the place where I can say, this is kind of the thing that I'm going for in my marriage, in my workplace, in my life, with my philosophy of life and how I live is to be a picture, to be something that is uh, referenceable by the people around me, that this is, this is a gospel-centered person. Now, I actually saved a few minutes at the end so I can go to uncharted territories for crossroads. Practical. Practical ideas for how to do this. I know that a lot of times the crosses we're good at the big picture. We're good at the, you know, rally and everything up. But what's actually going on in the playbook? Who knows? And so I, um, I do have a couple ideas. As your brother and your son, please just uh, evaluate, test and approve, and, and, and try and work with me here. How do you get to this place where you're, you're more than willing to go to Jerusalem regarding, without regarding uh, the physical trauma or whatever that like Paul is doing? Well, one of the things that I've been thinking about lately is a big challenge that we have in our faithful living as Christians in the West is unquestioned normality. There's a lot of subtle normals that come into our life. But those normals all add up to something big in the end. You think about it. Paul says in Ephesians, our battle is not against flesh and blood, even though we definitely try and have our battle against flesh and blood. Um, our battle is against principalities and powers and heavenly rulers of evil and you know, all this stuff that we just train ourselves not to think about. That, to me, says that there is an influence that's, that's seeking chaos that's outside of our, you know, line of sight. That there are evil powers and forces, you know, of darkness in this world that want to create normals in our life to lead us astray and try and just eventually uh, bring our world to more and more chaos, so just ask yourself, why is what's normal for me normal? Where did that normal come from? One of my favorite poems for, for the spring is uh, Mending Fences. Anybody ever read this one? Uh, I think it's Frost, right? Robert Frost. It's about two neighbors who are building a fence. And uh, one of them is like, why are we doing this? I don't know, we don't need this fence. And the other guy's like, good, good fences make good neighbors. And that's just this sort of the refrain of the poem. And I'm not just Mr. Deconstruct Fences. Of course, we have to ask ourselves, why is that fence there? But what I, what I really think is more common 
is that, that we just sort of have these, this good fences make good neighbors mentality and we just sort of all just con- continue on in this normal process that's just this is what we do without asking ourselves why? Who gave me permission to do this? Let me try and make this more practical. The normal, the new normal is my opinion and my feeling matters more than anything else. Where did that come from? What's the new normal is, is that my voice is uh, absolute truth. The new normal of I am allowed to be as polarized from my neighbor as I want to. The new normal of no longer can I just sort of critique kindly an idea, but I also had to crucify the person who had the idea. This is the new normal. All of that comes in subtly into our lives and then adds up to a tectonically shifting thing that says, I am the authority in my life. No, not the Bible, not God's word. No, 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 no. I am the person who gets to call it. It's a new normal for sexuality, a new normal for how we objectify the opposite sex or how we objectify each other's bodies, a new normal about what we're allowing and and we then, a new normal about how much entertainment we have and how, what entertains us and the desensitizing that that we have of sin and the new normal about how often we disconnect from reality by just sort of going into some sort of entertainment binge, who said that this is your normal? Who said that these things are, this is okay for your life to, 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 to add up to? Because eventually those things add up to something major. And we start to see things breaking down like family, like marriage, like uh, our values, everything in between because of the subtle normalities that we just sort of go, uh, go with unquestioning. Something to think about is, is, is the normal that you have influenced by God's word? Are you carefully critiquing what you think is normal by what God's trying to lead us in through his word? Something to think about practically. Uh, the other idea that I had was um, intentionality. We'll never get to a place uh, like Paul by unquestioning, you know, our normals and just sort of going with the flow. But we'll also never get to the place like Paul if we just sit here and think, I'll never be like Paul. He's got this thing going for himself and I am just, you know, little old me. I'm not even going to try. Well, my advice to you, and just go with me here, I work with a lot of people, young people who are involved in something called a quarter-life crisis which kind of sounds and feels a lot like what I just described. There's this big vision, there's this stuff to happen in this world, but I'm not even going to take a step forward because uh, I feel like I'm in quicksand. I can't do it myself, and I'll never get there, and so I'm not going to do it. One of the things that I think is very helpful is not necessarily like looking at Paul and saying, I'm going to be that guy tomorrow, but making one decision today. Making one step that's consistent with who you want to be tomorrow, today. Eventually, after a few months of making one decision, one day or one week at a time, you'll be somebody who has a track record, who has consistency, who has muscle memory, who has the ability to navigate through the next decision. So for example, if you were to take a very simple sentence and just put it in your pocket like, God benevolently dealt with sin through Jesus 
and uh, through his spirit has given us peace. Okay, just made that up. That sentence is true. God benevolently dealt with sin through Christ Jesus and then has given us peace. All right, so break that down, put it in your pocket and say, I'm gonna make one decision consistent with that this week, this month. God is benevolent, okay? So I have a choice to make once this week that I'm gonna communicate that that's true, that I believe that. Uh, I'm going to be generous one time. I'm going I'm I'm to give more money or I'm going to give uh, more love or I'm going to be somewhat generous so that I can say at least one person one time saw me and said, that guy, because he believes in the generosity and benevolence of God, actually did something about it. All of a sudden, one decision, and that's what I call incarnation. <laughs> what about has dealt with sin in Christ? Okay, so the next choice that you have to make, it's just one choice. I'm, I'm begging you one time just to say to somebody, your sin has been dealt with. I'm not going to punish you. The norm, the normal is I can punish you for anything and I can justify it to the nth degree. But what, is, uh, what if we were to say, I'm just going to make one decision while I'm coming and going with uh, driving or with people at work or with my family, and I'm going to say, I'm not going to punish you because sin has been dealt with through Jesus. You're forgiven. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to confirm this, this is true for me. Through all that, he has provided, with us, he has provided us peace. Think about this. One decision, one sentence that you can say in the next month that promotes peace. Because you believe that God has provided us peace. He has torn down walls of hostility and he has, through the cross, provided, with us, pe provided us peace. There's a normal out there that we are able to just sort of divide. We're able to split up. We're able to just sort of be hostile to one another. But what if the normal for you was to say, I'm going to, I'm going to promote peace with, with how I speak about individuals or, or how I uh, enter into arguments or, or don't. I'm going to be somebody that confirms that there is real peace. Over time, one decision at a time, you're going to get a backbone. You're going to be stronger. I guarantee you, you're going to be somebody who, when provided with the opportunity to go with a different normal that says, this, this is going to cost you too much. Don't do it. You're going to be able to say, I'm ready not only to be bound, but to die for this. And that's my prayer for all of you, that we be strong and mature people who go out into this city, whatever, whatever the cost, whatever come what may, say, I'm ready not only to be bound, but to take this even with, uh, if it costs me my life. So to uh, close, I just want to read to you um, my favorite verse. <laughs> Can't really work this in. I guess I could, but I had a busy week. This kind of says it all, so I want to read. This is a verse from Paul that he wrote right before he left. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5. From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Why don't we just pray through this chapter, actually. I'm going to read slower. That's how I think. Very slowly. <laughs> 
From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. No one. Though we once regarded Christ this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. It's the new normal. All of this is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. These are my marching orders. That God has reconciled his, the world to himself in Christ and does not count men's sins against them anymore. He's not counting sin against him anymore. He has committed to us the message of reconciliation, and we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. We are therefore the incarnation of this message. We are therefore the, the reputation of God is placed on us. We are Christ's ambassadors of this, as though God were making his appeal through us. Father, we receive that ministry. We receive the, uh, the fact that you, for some reason, thought it wise to place your reputation of your message on us. And if any of my brothers and sisters uh, out he or here this morning need some more courage to be able to work that out in their life, need some more uh, endurance, or need some forgiveness, or to help them forgive themselves, help them to be like Paul who says, I haven't attained all this stuff, but I I, I leave what was behind in the past and I move on forwards to the upward call of God in, in Christ Jesus. I'm moving towards the goal. Holy Spirit, fall afresh on my brothers and sisters here today that they would be just willing to, willing to have this cost them something relationally. Willing to have this cost them something physically even because they have a foundation in your ministry of reconciliation, in your gospel of grace. If anybody hasn't received your gospel of grace, I just pray that, that you speak to them right now and say, I'm not counting sins against you anymore. We thank you for it. We're so proud of you, Jesus. We just want to honor your work and your effort in this city in 2018, Grand Rapids. Amen.